A couple weeks ago, we maybe it was last week, we sang this song. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. A bulwark is like a wall. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, that means Lord of the armies. Lord of hosts, His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That song was uh, first composed in German by Martin Luther. And I think it's a pretty good theology of spiritual warfare. And today we're starting, well, we really started last week, into this text in the book of Ephesians that talks about spiritual warfare. Now here's the thing about spiritual warfare. There's all kinds of crazy ideas about spiritual warfare. In fact, I was a little hesitant even to use that term, spiritual warfare, because as soon as I use that term, all kinds of thinking is happening in all of our heads. Here's something about all those different kinds of thinking. They're not all the same. Because in large measure, they are very loosely grounded in Scripture. I think part of the reason for this is <clears throat> because Scripture 
draws our attention to this subject and then leaves a lot of gaps in our thinking. Doesn't say a lot about it. It doesn't spell it out much, which we'll see even in this text we're going to look at today. And this leaves a lot of room for our imagination. And on this subject, our imagination has done a lot of work. So what I want to encourage us to do is focus on the essence of the thing from what the scripture says without going much beyond that. To try to rein in our speculation, if you will. What I found as I've studied this text is even though we often use this text to complicate this question, this text really helps us simplify it. And that's kind of what I have in mind. And I think this song simplifies it. One little word. I wonder what the word is. Apparently it's not a big word. It's a little word. And there's only one. And at least according to Martin Luther, this little word ends the battle. I wonder what the word is. Well, we'll talk about that, but not right away. Let's look at the text of Scripture. We started on this verse last time, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, that means here's, I'm coming now to the end of this list of commandments that are about how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, speaking the truth in love, growing together into one new man, being imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love as Christ has loved us, walking as children of light, discerning what pleases the Lord, walking in the truth, walking as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil, filled with Christ by the Spirit, addressing one another in song, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and doing so in our everyday relationships, husband, wife, children, parents, employer, employee, the ordinary things, submitting to one another and so walking as wise. And then he says, finally, be strong. And he literally says, be strengthened. So it's not like buck up, give it your strongest effort. It's let whoever's going to strengthen you, strengthen you. Receive strength, we could say. Receive strength in the Lord and in the strength of His power. So apparently, the first thing to notice about this is it is not an operation of my own strength and power. 
but it is an operation of His strength and power made available to me. Wow. And as we learned last time, that really means we're walking together in the fellowship of the Almighty God. And we walk together in that fellowship. We walk together before God in Christ and by His Spirit. This is a thing you cannot envision in the book of Ephesians apart from the operation of the body of Christ the church. The fellowship of the saints in the fellowship of God that is purchased by the blood of Christ and operates in us by the Spirit of Christ. That is the strength with which we are strengthened in the book of Ephesians. That was last week's lesson. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. When is the evil day? We already read about it in Ephesians. He says, walk as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So now. So we might be able to withstand in the evil day and having overcome all or having done all. And this idea in this, te- in this verse is the idea of overcoming, of winning, of Well, overcoming all. We'll say something more about that. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and overcoming all to stand firm. Stand firm. So, I have in your outline in the bulletin this morning... uh, this question, what's to be done? We're being strengthened for some purpose. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor. What's to be done? Well, be strengthened. And then take up. There's two expressions here. Take up and put on the whole armor. And the idea of the whole armor is like the full equipment. So if we imagine a soldier, the soldier has a kit. All his armament. The whole kit. And of course, he's going to go on in, the, in next week's text to describe these things we're putting on in terms of what sort of armor they are. Well, we'll talk about that next time. But what's to be done is to take up and put on the whole armor. And then to stand. The reason for taking up the armor is so we'll be able to stand. And to withstand, 
That is to stand against. And then to overcome all opposition. We will apparently experience victory to overcome all. And then he says it again, to stand. I guess the idea is you're equipped and you've got all your equipment and so you're not being removed. You're not being pushed. You're not being removed, moved, changed, affected. You're standing and overcoming. I thought about that idea of overcoming. This word is also found in the book of First John a lot. If I look at First John chapter two, verse thirteen, John writes, "I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know who him who is from the beginning." I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The Word of God abides in you. That is two ways of saying the same thing. You are strong. The Word of God abides in you. Oh, here's another way of saying that. Because you know Him who is from the beginning. And here's another way of saying that. Because you know the Father. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's stated as an accomplished fact. Hmm. In chapter 4 of 1 John, John is talking about the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Already won. Already won. If we look at chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Hmm. So one of the things we might want to begin with in talking about the whole idea of spiritual warfare is the war is already over. Already and when he says in, in Ephesians, having done all, or having overcome all, he's also talking about something that is already true. How do you stand? 
in the light of these texts in 1 John, how do you stand as one who has overcome already? That's how you stand. You don't hope to overcome, you already have. Because you are born again in Christ. Because the one who lives in you is greater than the one who occupies the world. War's over. Victory is ours. And so as we stand in the day-to-day struggle of this life, this present life in this present darkness, as we'll read in a minute, in this situation, how do we stand as those who have already won? and will not be shaken from our victory. So, take up and put on the whole armor in order to stand and withstand. Overcoming all opposition, stand. Then he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. And I guess he must not be talking about flesh and blood rulers and flesh and blood authorities and flesh and blood cosmic powers, whatever that would be, or flesh and blood spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Oh, So he's not talking about earthly rulers, earthly powers, earthly forces, but spiritual forces. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Oh, and he already said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. The devil. So we've got the devil, the authorities. uh, Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. The, The devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. What a crazy term. And the spiritual forces. The devil and his schemes. So, the first thing we want to notice is who or what are we fighting And the first answer to that question is a negative answer. Here's who it is not. Not flesh and blood. Now, here's what I've noticed. This is a point of confusion because these enemies operate through flesh and blood agencies. These enemies operate through other people around us. And so, Paul is saying, try to remember that these people that are around you, that are acting like your enemies, are not the actual enemy. Not flesh and blood. Not with people. Though they are often the agents often unwittingly the agents of our actual enemy. People are in the field people are the field of battle, 
not the enemy. If we look back at chapter 4 in Ephesians, in the section of where it's talking about the operation of the church and the various parts of the body working together to function as a whole body, he says this, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Same thing we're talking about here in chapter 5. And so the confusion is we engage the battle in the human realm, in this world, in the place where we live, between us and other people it seems. But Paul is saying to us here, try to remember that these other people who seem to be opposing Christ, they're not the actual enemy. There's an enemy behind them. And he calls this enemy rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So there's a present darkness and this is operated from the heavenly realm. All of this is talking about the angelic community, I suppose, where there is a host that is under the rule of Satan and that Satan exercises his rule over this world in this employing this set of demonic beings. It's kind of scary. That's kind of what Luther was writing when he said was talking about when he wrote this world with devils filled. Threatens to undo us. But the people we're dealing with are not the enemy. The Scripture describes uh, people as captive to Satan. So we need to remember... Who or what are we fighting? He talks about the evil day here, that you might stand in the evil day. And he's already talked about that when he said, walk as wise, be filled with the Spirit, uh, because, and redeeming the time, because the days are evil. We are the people who bring the light of the grace of God in Christ into the evil world. 
And we have the opportunity to redeem the moment, whatever the moment is, whatever the thing going on around us is, whatever threat it might impose on us, whatever difficulty. We just want to notice where the battle happens. And I want to point out to us, to all of us, that where the battle happens is in the hearts and minds of people. That is the battleground. And so when I'm looking at someone and I think, well, that person hates me because I love Christ. And Christ said you should expect that from the world. Or that person... Uh, doesn't appreciate my expressions of the love of Christ. It's crazy, but it happens. Or I'm experiencing this persecution or this, uh, I don't know, oppression or this or that trouble. The enemy seems to be trying to hold me down or hold me back or push me out of the way. But what I want to notice is the battleground is in our hearts and minds, in the hearts and minds of the human creation of God, created to be in His likeness, to walk in fellowship with Him and to bring His image into the creation and what the opposition of the enemy is all about is making that as invisible as possible. And so the battle is the battle of faith. How have we overcome, according to First John? How did we? How, what's the instrument of our overcoming? Faith. Faith, not just faith in general, but faith in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the one who has already won, who is the one who in the person of His Spirit is in us and greater than the one who's in the world. Where does the battle happen? I just want to look at 2 Corinthians a little bit. Chapter 10. said I was fast at this. Chapter 10 of First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Okay, so not actual swords and shields. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. What is the stronghold? It is the captivity of the sinful human race. Okay, so we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the 
knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you hear that? Arguments, lofty opinions. The word here is literally the word for arrogance, plural. All the, arrog all the arrogances that stand against Christ. All the arguments, all the lofty opinions that are against the knowledge of God. And we take thoughts captive. Do you hear where this battle is being fought? It's the battle for the mind. It's the battle for what people think and believe about God. It's the battle for the outpouring of knowing God. It's about arguments, about thought, about the arrogance that opposes the knowledge of God. And that brings us, I think, to this section I'm calling the devil's objective and strategy. So we have an enemy. What's he trying to win? What's he trying to defeat? What's he working to accomplish? Well, I th all you got to do is read Genesis 1, I think. Or, sorry, not 1, but 3. Genesis 2 or 3. And you find out. What is he trying to accomplish? Opposition to whatever God is doing. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us make man to walk in fellowship with us so that we, so that our image will be born into the creation. And Satan says, ah, come on now. Bear your own image. What Satan would like to do is make God invisible. Here's a summary of the devil's strategy. Lie. Jesus calls him the father of lies. There's not a lie anywhere that he's not related to. What he's about is, is obscuring what is true. Disrupting true faith. It's very simple, really. He doesn't care whether you're sick or healthy. He doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. He doesn't care whether you're sane or crazy. What he cares about is whether you see the face of God in the face of Jesus. That's the thing. Whether you are restored to, live, to life by being restored to fellowship with the living God. And so he does adopt all kinds of crazy schemes. But the goal of every last one of them is obscure vision of God. 
Stand up against knowledge of God. Hide God. In this same text in 2 Corinthians, in the next chapter, verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It doesn't matter what other kind of crazy stuff is happening. If He can obscure your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's as simple as that. That your thoughts would be led astray. That you would think about anything else. That's it. So, you know, if He can get you to think about anything else by, I don't know, creating some trouble with your boss or a friend of yours or your health or you name it. What is it the thing that bugs you? What is your struggle? His interest in your struggle is it might distract you from Jesus. That's it. That's the whole thing. We don't need to know much more about it than that. In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, we read, Sorry, got to find the right verse here. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. For what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 7. Uh, we, sorry, not verse 7. I'm just going to read this whole section. Uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light, light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Satan wants to do is submerge that in some sort of fog or darkness. If you are a believer, what he wants to do is distract you so that the light, so that this light won't be visible from you to, to people who he's trying to keep blind. And what this says is in the life of the, in the mind of the unbeliever, they're blind. And they're held in that blindness. What he wants to do is keep people from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dim that. Smokescreen that. Here in the book of Ephesians, if we went, just went through the very theology of the book of Ephesians, we would say, what is the devil's objective? The devil must create darkness and fog around the work of God in the redemption of the church. What we are called to be here in the life of the church is that group of people that are so expressive of this love of God that we got somehow, this amazing grace that we are so expressive of this love that people look at us and say, oh, Jesus, people. That this light is the light of the world. So, if, the, if Satan's going to battle that, what's he going to do? Petty conflict. Dumb, petty conflict. Stupid stuff. He's going to get us offended about some kind of nonsense and poke us about how horrible it is that someone treated me that way. And they didn't even know they did it. They just said something. They weren't... They weren't working at trying to hurt my feelings? That's one way. Disrupt the expression of the love of Christ in the body of Christ. Obscure the Gospel. He will encourage strife. He will distract us from grace by telling us that our standing must be based upon our works. That's why he's called the accuser. And so he will come to you and say, Chris, you're not a Christian. What are you talking about? Christians don't behave that way. That's a lie because every Christian in the universe behaves exactly that way. We shouldn't. We ought not to. It doesn't make any sense. It's insane, but nevertheless... The devil doesn't have to make up stuff to accuse you of sin. He can just tell you, you can just point to what you actually have done. And so distract you because what the lie behind that lie is that that matters. The lie behind that lie is that our righteous standing before God somehow depends on whether or not I screwed up when I yelled at my child this morning. Anything, anything to turn our attention from Christ to self. Or anything else, frankly. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be self. It could be anything. The balance in my bank account, well, that's kind of self, isn't it? Even good stuff can be employed as a distraction. The Bible is full of stories who were distracted from their faith in God by their success. 
in this world. Our lives are full of that story. He can do this a million different ways. Among some of us, one of his favorite ways is to get people to pay way too much attention to him. Create some weird spectacle. Get us anxious about his activity in the world. If what the Bible says is true, his activity in the world should be no cause for anxiety among the people of God. He will disrupt the speaking of truth, the proper functioning of the body, the various parts in the fellowship of the body. He will encourage isolation. In fact, if you ask me, the goal of the devil is isolation. Because isolation is another word for dead. Alienate. Alienate. Discourage assembly. The devil is all on the side of how much trouble it is to get up and get to church this morning. Or to go to the trouble of spending some time with someone. Fellowship. The devil is the enemy of fellowship. He hates it. The devil's objective and strategy is to distract us from Christ. And so, there's a simple solution. Here's the thing about all this. If the devil looks at me and says, well, you can't call yourself a Christian, look how you're behaving. Lord Jesus. One of the accounts of the one little word in the psalm in the song is the one little word is Jesus the word made flesh that's one of the explanations what the devil's trying to do is keep you from calling on Jesus so when the devil's keeping you from calling on Jesus that's real simple because Jesus has demonstrated his great love for us because God has demonstrated His great love for us in the sacrifice of Christ, all i got to do is call upon the name of the Lord and I will be saved. That's what James is talking about when he says resist the devil and he will flee from you. He has no standing. And this doesn't mean some sort of incantation of the name of Jesus. It just means, where is the focus of my faith? Am I concerned of what's going on in the world around me? Or am I focused on my Redeemer? All i got to do is, if He says, what a horrible sinner you are, is say, yeah, I know. Praise God, Jesus died for my horrible sins.
I think the one little word is from that text we read from the book of Galatians. The reason I think that is because Martin Luther kind of said so. Because Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians. We read this in chapter 4 of Galatians. See if you can spot the one little word. <clears throat> when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One little word. The one little word that uh, Martin Luther attached that description to in that text is this word, Abba. That's the one little word. That's the one little word that has already defeated our enemy. That makes him powerless against us. It is not power from me. It is simply looking to Him, Abba. And when the, I am troubled by the troubles of this world, and of course Satan is trying to employ all the troubles of this world to distract me from faith in Christ, my quick resort is, Daddy, help me. It's not about me coming up with the cleverness or the strength or the strategy or the weird tactics or walking around some building or blah, blah, blah. There's so many million different things. It's just me crying out, Abba, Father. Looking to the One who has already put our enemy down. Has already redeemed us from the clutches of the devil. Has already presented to my unblinded eyes the glory of God in the face of Jesus. By the work of His Spirit so that I could see it. So one of the things I want to tell you about spiritual warfare is it's probably not as complicated as you've heard. It's simple. That doesn't mean it's always easy. But it is simple. The devil is defeated if you call on the name of Christ every time. Does that mean as soon as you call on the name of Christ, whatever trouble is troubling you will just immediately go away? No. But the point is, you have fellowship with God in Christ. And we are the people who are called to deliver this news out into the blind world and pray for those people that the Spirit would work in them like He has in us. And that is a force the devil cannot deal with. It's not ours. It's from Him. It's the operation of the power of God in the life of His church. Next week... We're going to talk about getting into the armor. And I think what we're going to see is the ordinariness of spiritual warfare.
The advice of the Scripture on this matter is actually quite simple. And if we say, well, what can we do about what the devil's doing? We can just call on the one who's doing, who's handling that. That's what. People are not the enemy. They're the place of battle. So we can disrupt arguments, tear down arrogance. We can be expressions of the love of Christ, beacons of the light of Christ. And that is what the devil is trying to disrupt. He will not succeed. The battle is ours already. Father, we call on You. You are our mighty fortress. You are the helper. We look to You. We thank You and praise You for this victory which is given Given, not won. Won by Christ on the cross. Just given for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.